but Chi-Chi's got a, a unique perspective. He works part-time for the NHS in London and part-time in private practice, and he's going to be talking about something which we've dipped into before, but I think we probably need a, a full session which, on, which is personality disorders and, most importantly, disordered personalities in the church. So, Chi-Chi, thank you so much. I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. So finally, someone on stage who hasn't written a book. <laughs> That'd be me. Really excited to be here. Great to see a full house. And uh, we're going to explore personality disorders. But before we do that, I'm sure you've had a lovely lunch. We are in that danger zone whereby the lunch is moving south. We may get a bit tired. So if everyone could please just stand up for about 60 seconds. Turn to somebody that you didn't travel down here with and tell them about the worst job you've ever had. You've got 30 seconds to do that and then you swap over. I'm sure there were some interesting uh, recollections there, possibly some painful memories too. But let's crack on. So... Um, we're going to talk about some of the key features of personality disorders. Um, it's going to be a short talk, so we're not going to expect you to be able to diagnose uh, mental health conditions amongst your congregations. What we're really looking at is helping you to understand the sorts of things that arise and just to develop some of that insight into what experiences people may have been through that have gotten them to that point. So how does that play out in church settings? Um, I'm assuming we all um, attend on Sundays. You might have pastoral groups that meet during the week. So there are many different interactions uh, and obviously ministries on top of that. So different interactions you might have where these problems may arise. And what can we actually do, um, I guess, on an individual and collective basis to support people? There's one um, verse that just keeps coming up for me. It's come up in church. Um, I use the Bible in One Year app. It's come up on the radio. It's Philippians 2, 3. Um, and I'd love to say that this fits neatly with my talk. Actually, I've really struggled as I was putting these slides together. Um, so it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The reason I struggle with that is that what I'd like to talk to you about is how to be really boundaried uh, and al almost protect yourself because uh, with this topic, there will be really difficult conversations. It can be quite stressful. So that verse I struggle with because it's sort of um, the way I've read it sometimes. I've really been meditating on it. It's almost like we have to make ourselves vulnerable and there, there's a risk that we burn out and we overexpose ourselves. So it doesn't fit neatly, but it's something that um, just helps to provide a bit of context, I think. So let's just paint a scenario. Imagine uh, tomorrow morning we're here at St. Peter's. I'm going to introduce you to three characters. Uh, first character is Willow. Willow's um, a pastor, so they're all, all ladies. The second character is Roberta. Uh, Roberta is a normal member of the congregation, but very enthusiastic. Uh, and another member of the congregation is Katerina. You may see that those names might be familiar. Um, 
So Katerina is really struggling with some difficulties and Willow, as the pastor, um, prays with Katerina after the service. Um, Willow's got an important engagement to, to get to but is really dedicated, prays really hard over these mental health difficulties uh, and then they finish and leave. So as Willow is leaving the church, she overhears Katerina speaking to a friend uh, and Katerina saying... Willow prayed for me. Willow was absolutely useless. She does nothing. She doesn't care. What kind of a Christian is she? Roberta, who prayed for me last week, was so much kinder, more gentle. She should be the one leading the service. You can imagine the sorts of emotions that might throw up if you overhear someone talking about you in that way. And it would be interesting whether you take on the role of uh, Willow who's been denigrated there, or Roberta, who's been idealised. And one of the things I'm trying to introduce, there are a few concepts. Um, So there are things that happen in the unconscious space. Uh, Not everything that is going on when we're talking about people who've experienced personality difficulties are deliberate. And we often use words, uh, as healthcare professionals as well, like, like manipulation, which suggests that people are doing things deliberately, and that's not always the case. So you've got that idealization of one and the denigration of the other. One of the other phenomena that's going on there is what we call projection. So that means that Katerina, the person in distress, is projecting out unconsciously some of her inner struggles. Um, So Willow... Uh, will probably feel pretty rubbish having dedicated um, some time that wasn't really there to supporting somebody uh, and really feeling like uh, she's been humiliated and that might reflect what's going on for the individual. And the other thing that may happen is splitting. So maybe as a casual observer you think, oh, maybe there is something wrong with the way that Willow's preaching or praying for that person. And there's a danger there that, um, and this is very relevant for a, a church setting where we may have different ministries, may have different sub-teams doing things, and there's a danger that without us being aware of it, splits occur, uh, and that might be driven by an unconscious process. So this term personality disorder, it's often uh, used in a very pejorative manner, And I must say, as psychiatrists, we don't always do a great job of explaining what it really means. What it ultimately means is that there are a number of key features that happen. And um, one thing I must say is that if you look at the diagnostic manuals, uh, you may come away a bit worried that you yourself have a personality disorder. (laughs) You may well, so you you could be spot on. But actually... um, it's important to identify what makes this a bit different from emotions that we all experience. And I want us to be really transparent here because whether we're the person experiencing difficulties or someone that's trying to support them within a church setting, uh, we do have a range of emotions. And I know we all try to be kind, caring, compassionate, but actually sometimes we do get angry and... uh, different emotions arise in us, frustration, disappointment. Uh, And the key thing I want to emphasize today is 
um, you shouldn't sort of pretend that that's not there and push it to the side, but actually try and use that emotion and think about why it's arisen. And as I gave that example, there may be something going on that's driven that emotion in you, and you can actually work with that. And that's what we tend to do. We refer to it as psychiatrists as transference. Um, So uh, as a psychiatrist, there may be something that comes up in a conversation with a patient of mine whereby I take on the position, again unconsciously, of someone significant in that person's life. So particular emotions may be directed towards me, but it's not really about me. It's about that process. So in personality disorder, we get distorted thinking. Now, I'm not talking about psychosis, where people might have delusional beliefs or hallucinations, but just not being able to think clearly, and I'll illustrate that shortly. And problematic emotional responses, the most severe of which we've um, had some uh, mention of things like suicidal behaviour, but deliberate self-harm is one of the ways... Uh, and using alcohol and drugs as coping mechanisms. Linked to that is impulsivity. So again, this is something that you may see in people uh, around you within the church, that they just tend to do things very impulsively without thinking, and that can be uh, confusing to see. And one of the key ones is interpersonal difficulty. So difficulties in a whole range of relationships. So within the family, romantic relationships, and within our community. However, what differentiates that from uh, what would come in through my door uh, and possibly lead to someone actually being diagnosed with a problem? And I think the key thing here is that these issues occur on a spectrum. So yes, we all could identify with some of those um, features, but the key thing is what I call the three Ps. The first one uh, is that these issues must be pervasive. So they occur in lots of different settings. Um, So I think connect group is a... We call them connect groups, our our pastoral groups. That's a really, really intimate setting where you're getting to know uh, each other a little bit more and you can start to potentially pick out that there are clues that something isn't quite right. And actually there are difficulties that arise within the group but you may notice that that person's also having difficulties at work or things to do with uh, their own family start to come up, which just suggests that there are pervasive problems. Another key one is that they have to be persistent. Uh, So for me to make a diagnosis of a personality disorder, it has to have arisen in someone's adolescence and to persist into their adult life. And of course, problematic Uh, it makes sense. On top of that, it tends to be very distressing for the individual. I'm not going to spend too long on the next slide, uh, which is uh, one for the the mental health professionals in the room, and you probably can't see it there. I'm happy for the, the slides to be shared. What it has is a list of the different diagnoses, and as I said, you can, you can worry yourself uh, by going through them, and you probably will identify with some of those uh, characteristics. The main one, which is in the green, is what we refer to as an emotionally unstable or borderline personality disorder. That tends to present very dramatically. That scenario that I painted with uh, one person being denigrated and the other idealised is a classic sort of thing. So 
chronic feelings of abandonment, uh, a very low mood, and impulsivity. So very risky um, behaviours tend to result. So when I have a patient in with me, um, I go really gently and often personality disorder, we tend to think that that means that you must be a bad person, there's something wrong with you. And all I do is I go through these slides with my patients. And the next one is a little graph that I use to demonstrate what happens. Um, again, it's come out a little bit small. And this is really hard for me because I'm, I'm colorblind. So I always have to do a double take. We're going to start with the green, uh, which is the lower one. So you've got time on the x-axis and distress on the y. So think of a distressing scenario. We all go through anxiety. For me, um, I, I finished work quite late yesterday. I was staying overnight in a hotel. 8.30, I'm on the train coming from Victoria down to Brighton, getting ready, starting to unwind. Let me just check my um, hotel confirmation. Scrolling through my email, can't find it. I'm pretty sure I booked it. My anxiety levels are starting to rise. Haven't booked it. It's 8.30. It's a Friday night. I might not have anywhere to stay. It's going up and up. Eventually, and also the other thing, I was on the train, so the reception might be poor. So I'm hitting peak anxiety. Now, I was able to, to get something online very quickly. It was all sorted. Uh, and I thought, I'm sure there'll be somewhere where out of season, I'll find somewhere to stay. So the anxiety levels then eventually start to drop. For somebody that might be diagnosed with a personality disorder, they're the red line. You'll notice that at the baseline, their anxiety levels are higher. And what we're talking about is mental performance. And a technical term we use is mentalization. That's the ability to think and perform mentally. And in order to do that, you need to be uh, self-aware and you need to have some awareness of the environment around you. When your baseline is high, with distress, it goes even higher. And look, it stays at that high level. Therefore, you can't do those mental tasks in the way that we would expect people to do. And that is a summary of a personality disorder. So there's no blame there. It's not the individual's fault. One of the things I haven't touched on is what actually gives rise to a personality disorder. Uh, and simply put, often it's um, significant trauma in one's developmental years. So there's no blame attached. A different analogy that's used on the next slide is um, a bucket. And this idea that with any bucket, or you could use a basket like this, you have all these different inputs. So your family of birth, uh, how many siblings you had, what your school was like, and your friends. And then you throw in um, any significant life events and traumas. And you can imagine at some point that bucket or basket is going to get full. Once it becomes full, it overflows and chaos ensues. And sometimes what you need to do is to poke some holes in that bucket and just to relieve the tension. But when people are really distressed, they can't think and act in the way that we expect them to. Hence, people that we're in community with may do things that frustrate us, that annoy us. And it's important to just hold that emotion and be aware of some of the things that may have given a rise to that. The next slide um, is something that I throw in there. I, I do a lot of teaching for GPs. 
Uh, and one of the other bad things we do is that we sometimes over-medicate for people with personality disorders. So from this morning, we talked about certain conditions like depression and, and the need often to think about biological treatments, which is completely appropriate. But actually, for personality disorders, there's very, very little evidence base um, for treating with medication. And so psychological therapies are the mainstay of treatment. So what has all this got to do with the church? You will have people in your congregations who are going through a range of difficulties that will sit somewhere on this spectrum. And I go back to the morning where we've talked about the need for community and for connection. So I wasn't just trying to keep you guys awake uh, when I got you to do that little exercise earlier. What you were doing there is you were forming a bit of a connection, maybe with someone that you've never met before. I went to a really good talk um, at a leadership conference a couple of years ago given by Ned Hallowell. He's an American psychiatrist and Christian. And the key message from that was a thing called vitamin C. And I think this is where the church comes in. Connection is the C. And our role, and this is one of the great things for me at this interface between the mental health world and the church, our role together is to help to connect people. Now, it might be connecting one person to another or connecting a person to some happier memories or something that they're passionate about. But we just have those moments, uh, whether you're serving on the door uh, and welcoming people, and, and I think we appreciate how key that interaction can be. That can be the difference between someone coming back to the church or not. Uh, and in, in moments of ministry and, uh, and the various ways in which we're interacting with people that come in through our doors, we've got that opportunity to connect. So I think I just want to layer that with an understanding of the struggles people may have experienced. So it's not just about being polite and welcoming people. That person walking in through the door, it might be really significant for a whole range of reasons. And sometimes when people are a little bit withdrawn and they don't want to share a coffee with you and they just seem to be a bit off, again, there can be a range of things that may be going on for them which we don't have a good understanding of. So that's all very good. Um, are there any things that we need to be mindful of? Certainly there are. So there are a few uh, pitfalls that we're going to talk about now. So we've talked about um, trying to get a sense of what might be going on for that person and, and we may or may not get there in terms of scratching beneath the surface. So there's a danger um, that sometimes we become over-involved because we might interact with someone and we pick up that there's been significant psychological trauma. And the danger here is that we, uh, we start going the extra mile, doing things that go way beyond our comfort zone and um, there's a danger that we start to collude with them because the difficulty someone may have experienced can often be quite complex. And I'd, I'd strongly encourage those of you who aren't uh, dual trained as mental health professionals to be mindful um, and not try to do that extra bit. If you're not a trained counsellor, you don't need to necessarily get into um, that saviour role of, of having to be the person to support them. 
your, your role might be to signpost them to the appropriate professional care. Because the danger, as I again tried to highlight in that scenario earlier with the three characters, is that the moment you step off because you might have burnt out or you don't have availability, that might be seen as disappointment. If somebody does have an emotionally unstable personality disorder, that is characterized by long-standing rejection. So it doesn't matter if you've been with that person for weeks and months. The time that you're not there for them, that's going to be more validation that people don't care for them, that they're not loved, and it can just reinforce the negative self-talk that they've got. So what I'm not saying is, is, is that you should be uncaring or uh, closed off, but it's just really being mindful about the pitfalls. Now, the second thing that you can do uh, is identify with the aggressor. So you might see um, the person in front of you as the problem, uh, and there may be a third party involved, and you actually feel that they're the bad guy um, that's the person in distress, they're the bad guy, and you identify with this third party instead, and you just back off. So it's really about getting the balance right um, and trying to be discerning and think about what's most appropriate. And I'll probably come back to this, but the key thing is not to do that alone because that's where you can be vulnerable. So I know you're thinking... um, I'm really calm and caring and this is how I must be uh, every day I'm at work. But I get frustrated, I get angry. We all go through these emotions. I think it's really important um, for us to recognise when we might be starting to get a bit angry in a situation or frustrated by it. Uh, So one of the traps we fall into is that we become an angry person. Um, And one of the one of the worst things you can do if someone's shouting at you um, is to shout back at them um, because no one's hearing each other uh, and it just doesn't help to be the second angry person. Another trap that we can fall into is um, misplaced humour and trying to distract people or not to take their problems seriously enough. Uh, One of the things I recall, really embarrassing... um, things about two years ago I had a Friday evening clinic um, and there was a young lady who did have quite a, a distressing uh, history and what had happened is my, sec- my uh, receptionist leaves at 5.30 on a Friday so anyone afterwards has to press the buzzer directly for me so she pressed the buzzer she come in the building I'm on the first floor and I've got a colleague who's also a psychiatrist on the ground floor um, so about five minutes has gone by and she hasn't come into my room. It was a first appointment. So I called her mobile phone. I said, where are you? And she said, uh, I'm with you, aren't I? And she'd actually gone to see my colleague. So anyway, she came up. We did the consultation. Um, she was really tearful at various points. And as we finished, we arranged a follow-up. And I said to her, I'll see you next week. And at least I know that you're not going to go to the wrong place because you know where my room is. And I was trying to be funny. She burst into tears again. And I nearly lost um, that relationship with the patient. Unfortunately, one was able to rectify it. But you've got to be really, really careful. There are times where humor is appropriate. But just be careful that 
um, how you come across can be perceived in lots of different ways and there's a time and place for being humorous. I think the other thing not to do is to be seen as someone that's going to interrogate that person, so we call that the probe. So it's almost like you pick up a few clues, you can see that something isn't quite right and there's something going on, but your role isn't necessarily to dig and dig and dig and do that investigative bit of work and find out what's going on. Um, I think the key thing is um, for someone to feel that there's a consistent, safe presence uh, and you might have to think about what might be the appropriate support they need, but you don't need to do the digging. Uh, Another thing we refer to is overreaching. So uh, once you have established that connection, pushing people too far too quickly um, because... Remember those three Ps, persistent and pervasive. So these might be difficulties people have experienced over a really long period of time. You're not going to get there quickly. And that's why you need a wide team and you've got to be in it for the long haul. So you've really got to take baby steps. But conversely, there's lots of enthusiasm in the church and that's fantastic. Um, But this isn't the opportunity for us to be cheerleaders Uh, and we need the energy um, but you've got to remember we're dealing with really serious issues here and so adopting that cheerleader approach might again reinforce um, negative self-talk because that person may struggle to identify with you if you're this happy buzzy person and they're really experiencing distress they're going to struggle to connect with you So what are the keys for really working with people um, and um, helping them to move forward? It may sound obvious, but being curious without being judgmental is really, really key. Um, I talked about not using words like manipulation. So even if you're, you're, you're seeing stuff which just doesn't sit right, um we've got to be really careful not to attribute motive because we don't understand um, people's journeys uh, and what might be or might not be motivating them. And I think also just attaching labels, and this has been mentioned already today, um, that there must be some unresolved sin that's explaining that behaviour. Maybe, but we don't know. So we've got to be really, really careful because these labels really stick. So our words are oh so important. So I talked a little bit about boundary setting earlier. It is really, really difficult. Um, And I think it might go against our instincts because we feel like we're supposed to just throw ourselves in, fully immerse ourselves um, and support people. Um, But this is a tension because we have limited resources as individuals So there's a real need to do things collectively. Uh, And you can be boundaried. So if you do have um, another commitment, you can't always be the person that's going to be overrunning. You know, that might be your family, for instance. And every time you're supporting somebody who's in distress, you've got to think about how that affects other people uh, within the church, within your uh, own social group. So you can set boundaries. Um, 
an example of that would be if you're supporting someone who's going through a difficult time, you might dedicate a particular time to talk on the phone. So it's not going to be a three-hour conversation. You will say, I'm available. Let's, let's pencil in this coffee. I'm going to meet for 30 minutes, diarize it, um, and try and stick to those boundaries. Um, because inevitably... Um, we're humans and we will let that person down and that can be really painful. Moving on. Um, There are crises that arise and these can be really distressing. So um, I think being careful about those traps and having some awareness about the resources that are out there. Um, One of the encouraging things I'm seeing today is that we're trying to move things forward and I can see churches trying to mobilize and provide some of this support, which is great. But also there are, uh, fortunately in this country, uh, we do have a national health system and yes, there are, there are challenges there, but most places in the country, if not all, have a 24-hour crisis team. Um, so if you, if you search for the borough that someone lives in and you can ask them where they live, um, you will be able to Google um, a crisis team or home treatment team that works around the clock, uh, either based in an emergency department or out of an office. They can see people at home. Yes, they have limited capacity, and it doesn't always work out perfectly, but there are things that can be done beyond you sitting with that person and being the only person that can help them. Uh, I tend to give my patients the number of the Samaritans, Uh, And there may be other um, charities and organizations that you're familiar with. So really important to be present, but that doesn't always mean that you have to do everything. I'm going to skip over the next slide, which is more for individuals uh, who might be suffering. So very quickly, one of the things uh, I tell my patients to do is to think about things that have helped historically because the best resource actually this is a a relevant slide you're facing that situation where someone's in distress and it's really difficult uh, to know what to do and it's difficult for somebody like me and this is what I do every day Um, you don't always have the answers and the thing I always do is to um, turn it back to the individual you've been here before what has helped in the past and it's different things for different people And I always encourage my patients to actually write them down uh, because that helps. And Rob talked about SMART goals. And there's something intentional about actually dedicating time to think about what helps in distress. So a few examples. For some people, it might be looking at particular photographs of um, happy times, a a holiday. There may be particular songs, um, journaling, drawing, So it's really up to that person to um, decipher that for themselves. And you can just support them to do that. Because if you go back to that graph that I showed you, when you're really, really distressed, guess what? You can't think properly. It's really hard to do that then. So in a time of non-crisis, that's often the moment to sit down with someone and say, well, why don't we prepare? Because you've been there a few times now. So why don't we prepare for this next one? Who are the people that you're going to call? What are the things that you can do in that moment? There are lots of apps as well these days. There's one I um, signpost my patients to called Calm Harm. And it it just gives them some exercises to do uh, when they're really distressed. 
So what is it that people need? Um, there's this concept of validation. And what does that really mean? It means that people want to be heard. You don't have to agree with what somebody has done. It's never um, pleasant to hear someone who's maybe self-harming. And it's hard often to understand what's driving that behavior. But you can demonstrate that you've heard them and that you understand that that's an expression of significant difficulty. So linked to listening to them, understanding. It's not the same as agreeing, it's understanding. And if we go back to the bucket and all of those things that may be sitting there and all of the insecurity that arises from that, people want to feel safe. So that's something that we can all do. And I often say it's, it's not really about the clever stuff um, a lot of the time. It's about doing the really, really simple things well. I've uh, given some examples of validation. So there may be a situation where someone, if you like, blows their top because um, something hasn't happened. And so an example is what we call reflecting back. I get that you're frustrated. I could see that if I were in a similar position, I might be frustrated. And you just do that in a nice, gentle way without being condescending. And I think people do um, appreciate that. But then I just want to finish by thinking about how you look after yourselves. Um, Community seems to be one of the big themes today. And as well as supporting that person, you've got to think about um, who else you can turn to when you're dealing with a tricky situation. Quick example, um, and it's a recent one. We had a difficulty in my Connect group where um, the difficulty somebody was experiencing was having a real impact on the group dynamic. Um, and I'm a psychiatrist and I was struggling with it. So we took it back to the church and there, there is a support system in place and conversations took place over time and um, the situation didn't really resolve um, in the way that we wanted to, but there was a process that we went through which meant that uh, if we go back to the earlier example of splitting, we made sure that we avoided a split so that the message was consistent, both from within our pastoral group and from the wider church. And remember, uh, unless you are the pastor, and even if you are, there are, there are people above you um, or around you, there are going to be other people that can support you. You don't have to break someone's confidentiality. You can speak very gently about a situation and see how you can be supported in that. So that's what, that was a good thing that happened. Uh, and it's not always about the outcome. Sometimes it's just making sure um, that you've been consistent, uh, that you've maintained boundaries, but also been caring. And I think, although we didn't get the outcome we would have liked, we did um, achieve all of those. Being very careful about timing uh, and thinking about ways in which you need to set boundaries. And I'm sure you can think of situations where you've gone over and above. And I'm not saying don't be committed and support people. It's just having that awareness where 
you may be stretching yourself a little bit too much and you just need to pull back. So it's about knowing your limits, knowing what support you need around you and sharing that load. Um, And that is one of the great things that we share in common. So I'm very much a clinician, um, but I see so many um, similarities between what we do. So we have uh, groups where we might reflect on difficult interactions with patients And as the church, we might have breakfast meetings, prayer meetings um, for the church staff, regular staff meetings where you can pray together, think about difficulties. So use those opportunities to share that burden. It makes a real difference. I think of uh, one scenario where I did have somebody, it was when I just started in private practice, I think it was my first week, and I had a patient who came in really, really distressed And I've been a psychiatrist for over a decade, so this is bread and butter for me. The big difference was, unlike my NHS practice, I didn't have this team around me. And so the patient left, and there was that thing of, is something going to happen? Is this patient going to do something to harm themselves? And it's really hard to sit with that. I remember that lunchtime, went for a walk. I was meeting uh, a colleague for lunch, and she could see I was stressed go back to that curve my distress levels were way up here we had a coffee I offloaded by the time I'd left everything had calmed down so it's a great example for me because I've had to in part of my practice carve out that team so yes you may be in a really small church you may be maybe the most senior person you've got to be creative in finding that support network and it's not good enough for us to say There just isn't anyone else out there. If you're in a bigger church, great. But if you're not, be creative and get that support because it makes a huge difference. And just remember, if nothing else, vitamin C. We've got a really important role to play in just connecting people. And it might be that one interaction that makes a difference. It might be something that's a long haul and you need to just stick with it and really support someone. But just remember some of the pitfalls and your limitations And uh, that's about it from me. Do stay in touch. I'm more than happy to connect with people. And I hope you found that interesting. Thank you.